We're in Genesis, uh, continuing our way. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. Last week, uh, we began or jumped into uh, the Abraham story in Genesis 15. Tonight, uh, we come kind of to the end of the Abraham story. Uh, Maybe a familiar story for you. Um, Kind of a weird one in what God asked Abraham to do. So let's read this here together, the first 19 verses of Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withhold, withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work. We pray that by your spirit, you would open our hearts. Open our ears, open our eyes, that we would see, that we would taste, that we would know that you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I don't know how many stories of martyrs you have heard, but uh, two have stuck out to me over time, mainly because of the quotes that came from the moments of their execution. Both took place in England. Uh, the first one was in 1555. Uh, England, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake together uh, in Oxford, England, tied side by side. Uh, and as the fire was being lit at their feet, uh, Latimer is said to have said this, to Ridley, be of cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Around the same time, John Bradford was burned at the stake with John Leaf. And as the fire was being made ready, Bradford is said to have said to Leaf, be of good comfort, my brother, for we will have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. And so they went to their deaths uh, as martyrs for their faith, not willing to give up or recant the faith uh, that they had in the gospel and in Jesus. And actually, the, the history of the church has been littered with testimonies like this, uh, powerful testimonies, um, people who laid it all down literally for the faith, obeying God, following Christ, even when it meant death. And we think to ourselves, you know, if it ever came time and if I were in that position, would I have such faith? Would I have such boldness? Would I have such conviction to be able to put uh, to words to back up what I say I believe in my very life? And if you're anything like me, you hear stories like that and you really want to ask the question, where does faith like that come from? Is it just something that's like miraculously provided in the moment? Where does faith like that come from? Well, I think Genesis 22 begins to kind of provide an answer to that question for us. And so I want to look uh, here at three things regarding faith, Abraham's faith and how it plays out here in Genesis 22. Faith's requirement, faith's response and faith's reward. Those are the three things I want to look at. So the first one, look at this with me, is faith's requirement. What does God require of Abraham's faith? What is Abraham's faith in God's promises to him, God's promises to work in and through his offspring uh, into the future and to bless all the nations of, of promise he's already given uh, before this chapter? What is that going to require of Abraham? Well, that comes front and center here in Genesis chapter 22. And the first two things that we got to deal with uh, is one that we read here out of the gate that God tested Abraham. And then we got to deal with the fact that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. So what is the test and what is the deal with the sacrifice? Well, the first thing, and this may be pretty... Um, Simplistic, but uh, just quickly, the idea of test, we read that, that God tested Abraham. What is God doing? Why is God being mean? Uh, is God just trying to like poke holes in him and, and see, see how he responds? Um, well, surely, I just think it's it, it, one thing you need to understand. This isn't a pass-fail thing that, that God is putting Abraham up to. And it's like God's kind of sitting back and saying, all right, now I'm going to see if, what he's really made of. Uh, there's a reason why, at least this was a case for me, I'm assuming it's the case for you, very few of your exams, uh, if any, are pass-fail, right? Why? Um, because if, let's just be honest, if an exam is pass-fail, how much work are you going to do going into that exam? Just enough to pass, am I right? So that's one reason most exams aren't pass-fail. But think about 
you know, you come here maybe to like get away from class and thinking about your studies, but think about testing, the testing that you endure as a student uh, in your major and whatnot. Um, there's a re- to test something. The reason that your professors test you and test the material that you've learned to that point is to show you where you are and to grow you in how and where and what you've learned. Right? It shows you where you are with, with the material, how far you've come, how you're doing in at that point in the class. It grows you. It forces you to prepare. It forces you to own the material as you've learned it. Right? Testing in the sense is a positive thing. Now, I know we don't think of tests as positive things, but it's a positive thing. If you're going to learn uh, what you're doing in class, you have to take tests and master that material. The second part, the way that God goes about testing Abraham here is through sacrifice. And this is the one that gets us because if you know anything about the rest of the Bible, we know that God explicitly commands, uh, forbids child sacrifice. It's something that's very abominable to him. Uh, it's something contrary to his holiness, to his goodness, to his righteousness, all these things. And you, one thing to remember about this is that Israel, as they would have heard this for the first time, the story of their forefather Abraham, they would have known that child sacrifice was not acceptable to God. But what about Abraham? Well, in a sense, I'm not saying that this didn't baffle Abraham, but do you find it interesting that Abraham just kind of goes Abraham has faltered a lot during his story, but at at this request, at this command of God, he just goes. He just packs up and he goes. Um, So in one sense, child sacrifice was kind of a common thing in his world. Doesn't mean that he thinks that his God is asking that of him necessarily. Doesn't mean that he's not struggling to understand what's going on here. The thing that would have been most baffling maybe for Abraham would have been... God promised me this child. God gave me this child. Now God wants this child back. That had to have been going on in the heart and mind of Abraham at this point. And so think about this. Think about Abraham's life. This is not the first hard thing that God's called him to. Uh, Genesis 12, when God shows up in Abraham's life, he says, go, leave everything you've ever known and go to a land that I'll show you. And the author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abraham went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Genesis 15, God comes again and promises again a son, even though Abraham and his wife are very old and they've never had a child. And then eventually he does, uh, his wife does conceive and give birth to Isaac. Now here's the question. Shouldn't the story have ended with the birth of a son? Shouldn't it have? Remember, we read in Genesis 15 that he was kind of struggling with this promise that you promised me a son, but I'm old, my wife's old. I just don't think it's going to happen. But then she conceives and they have a son. And you think to yourself, shouldn't the story have ended there? Faith triumphed. Abraham believed. God credited it to him as righteousness. He's given the son. He's given the son of promise. And now he can just live and enjoy all the blessings of that right relationship with his God and with the blessing. He faced his giants, right? His barren wife had conceived. His team had won the state championship or whatever. Um, But in the story, as you read Abraham's story, and in real life, by the way, the story doesn't end there. And the story is left with this question, and this is what Genesis 22 asks head on. To whom or to what had Abraham given his heart to? To whom or to what Had Abraham given his heart to? What had Abraham been waiting for? What had Abraham been sacrificing for? What had Abraham been obeying for? 
Was it for God by faith? Or had he just done it for a son? That question is there. And that question is, is, uh, is addressed head on here in Genesis 22. Faith's requirement comes to Abraham and asks, What, Abraham, are you prepared to give up by faith? What are you prepared to give up? The force of verse 2. Take your son. Just the emphasis here. Take your son. Your only son. Your son, Isaac, whom you love. Take him and give him back to me. Isaac was a fulfillment of promises. The tangible blessing of God. So the test was obeying God when it appeared that it meant that Abraham wouldn't get the blessing. Obey God even though it looks, even though it appears that I'm not going to get the blessing. So God wasn't just calling for Abraham to put his son on the altar. What God was calling Abraham to do was to put his very heart, to put his very hopes, to put his very dreams on that altar. To see where his faith is, where his faith had been, what it had been in. Is this not what Jesus is getting at? When Jesus, you know, it's a sentimental verse to us when Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That's a that's a a sweet image to us. But if you go back to before Jesus was crucified, it was not a noble image of all the images Jesus could have chosen for his disciples, his disciples who did not know how he was going to die. And when he did die that way, it nearly broke all of them. Of all the images he could have chose, chosen to describe what it would be like following him, he chooses one of ghastly death. Or, think about one of Jesus' encounters. He, he encounters the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler is such a, 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 a mysterious story to us because this is a guy that comes to Jesus and he's eager. He wants to follow Jesus. He just wants Jesus to tell him, Jesus, I'm here. I'm ready. Just tell me what I need to do. Y'all remember what Jesus says to him. One thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. You remember how the story ends, at least for us as it's written. We read that that man went away grieved, broken hearted because he had great possessions. Why? Because Jesus was calling him to die to the one thing in his life that he thought was giving him life. Jesus said, you want to follow me. You've got to die to the thing that you think is giving you life. And the man went away sorrowful. And so the question facing us there and here again in Genesis 22 is what is that for us? What is that for us? What is faith's requirement? If I'm going to have faith in Jesus, what does that require of me? It requires that you give to Jesus that which you think gives you life. And so many of you, you're bound and determined about what kind of person maybe you're going to marry, right? Maybe not only a Christian, but one that's strong in their faith, a spiritual leader, perhaps all good things. But here's the thing. One day, that's going to run into a reality. And that reality might be five years from now. Might be 10 years from now, God forbid, right? And that reality is, as you're single, you're going to have words going through your head. I'm so lonely. 
Surely God would not want me to feel this way. Surely God doesn't want me to do nothing. Sure, this person has baggage. Sure, this person doesn't really care about God. But look, I'm not a saint either. What is that? It's a test. What is faith going to require of you? Some of you, you've got it in your head. uh, And in great and strong ways, you're going to do big things for God. You're passionate. You're genuine. One day that desire, though, in the way that you've been nursing it, is going to run up against a reality. Maybe that reality is an eight to five job. Maybe that reality is an eight to five job with zero upward mobility, but you have no other options. Maybe that reality runs into four kids, (laughs) like me. Um, A family to provide for, bills to pay, diapers to change. And you'll sit around wondering, maybe you'll be looking at your friends on Instagram or whatever social media we're using in those days. And you'll wonder to yourself, did I miss it? Did I just totally miss the boat? Did I just totally give it away? Am I a failure? Is this really God's will for me? What is that? It's a test. My campus minister said it like this. He said, you've not been tested until you see that to obey God in faith requires some kind of death. Some kind of death. And that it's God himself who is calling you to it. You know, I think that's our biggest problem with this story. Now look, there's a lot of different issues and and things that we could talk about that we just don't have time. But I think that is the biggest, at the end of the day, your biggest issue with this story is that you have never even come close to being able to even imagine that God would ever ask of you something, anything near this magnitude. God wouldn't ask me to do that. He just wouldn't. What will faith require of us? It requires your life. It requires your heart. It requires all of you. And there's nothing in your life that God, that is off limits for God to ask you for. Abraham seems to know this though. That's the remarkable part of the story. So let's move on here to the second part, faith's response. And I don't know about you, but the most baffling part of Genesis 22 is Abraham's response. Because he has acted like a buffoon in other parts of his story. His story began in Genesis 12. He's twice told people that his wife was his sister because he was scared for his life. Um, he has a falling out with his own nephew. His own nephew doesn't even like him. Uh, he keeps making mistake after mistake. But when it comes to this, and God asks him to do what it seems to be the most baffling part of the story, Abraham just goes and does it. That's how it reads, at least. Two things to, to understand how Abraham responded in faith here. He reasoned and he looked. Um, where do I get this? Hebrews chapter 11. We've referenced that a lot this semester. But Hebrews chapter 11, the author there says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered or he reasoned that God was able even to raise him from the dead. It's an interesting way to put it. The author of Hebrews puts it there. Because here's the beauty of the full picture. Real faith is not untested. And you've not been tested until obeying God requires some kind of death of you. But here's what Abraham also knew. He also knew that it would require some kind of resurrection. Abraham knew that his faith demanded, required some kind of death, but he knew also that there would be some kind of need for resurrection. 
The only thing, that, that is the only thing that can account for this kind of resolute obedience that Abraham displays here. The obedience of faith is not some blind leap. It's not that Abraham just all of a sudden sucks it up and says, okay, whatever. He hasn't done that to this, that to any, to this point in the story at all. And his obedience of faith is not thoughtless. It's not illogical. Abraham considered the capability of God, the maker, sustainer, the provider of all things, even life itself. And he said, I'll take that, even though I don't understand It's also not Abraham's first rodeo, right? He'd failed these tests before. And what he says to himself is, every time I thought I was wiser, every time I messed it up, every time I tried to save my life, every time I lost it. He considered, he reasoned, that God was able even to raise him from the dead to keep his promise. The second thing he does is he looked, he looked, he looked to a lamb. Right? He says to his son, God will provide. You look at verse 7 and 8. Isaac's starting to piece it together. Okay, we got, we got the wood. I'm carrying the fire. Where's the lamb? Abraham, again, resolutely, God will provide him for himself the lamb. There's faith right there. God will provide for himself the lamb. That is faith. And as Tim Keller so aptly puts it, he says it like this. You see, Abraham doesn't ascend the mountain saying... I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But rather, God will do it. God will do it. I don't know how, but God will do it. That can be the only thing that can account for Abraham's obedience of faith. And that is the obedience of faith. James, in his letter, James 2.22, he goes so far to say that Abraham's faith was made complete by this thing. His faith was made complete. His faith had brought him to the point that he knew that God was all he needed. Because he had come to the point where he realized that God was all he had. You want my son? My son can't be my everything. You have to be my everything. He had come to the point that he knew God was all he needed because he knew that God was all that he had. And so he lived accordingly. And that is what accounts for the obedience of faith. Not how much I can muster, but how much God already has. What will keep you from believing? You know, I mean, it's just sex, right? What will keep you from believing? Well, if I don't fudge the numbers, somebody will. And they'll get the sale. Or they'll get the bonus. Or they'll get the promotion. What is going to keep you from believing? Look, it's just a drink to take the edge off. That's it. What is going to keep you from leaning into those things? What will lead you into the obedience of faith? Here's the kicker with Abraham. Abraham looked to a lamb, but he looked to a lamb through a veil. He had no clue what God was going to do. He had no clue how God was going to do it. But all he knew was God's going to do something. And so you see how much more remarkable that is for us on this side of the story. But not only this side of the story, this side of the cross, because thousands of years after this, those same hills, you've got another sun stretched out, but this time there's nobody there to stop it. There's actually hundreds there egging it on. This time there's no voice of deliverance. There's only a cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
As Paul puts it in Romans 8, He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, freely give us all things? This is the beauty of the obedience of faith. I think one of the most tragic things I've ever heard in my life was someone speaking to a room of teenagers. And they talked about this story. And he asked questions like, what's in your heart to do for God and all this? The name of Jesus was not mentioned once. Do you read stories like this? And does Jesus come into the picture at all? And if he comes into the picture, do you think to yourself, well, Jesus did that for me, so I guess I have to do something for him. Is that how you've heard it? I hope not. But the sad reality is I know a lot of you have. The beauty of the obedience of faith is, yes, it requires death. Die to yourself. Die to your self-interest. Die to your comforts. Die to your securities, your reputation, your feelings. But it leads, what we're told over and over again, is that it leads to life. The New Testament actually calls it joy. And people in the New Testament actually say, it's a joy that you have even when you're suffering. And we're talking about people who wrote these kinds of things when their brothers and sisters in Christ were being fed to animals. Joy, even in suffering. And again, but if you're paying attention, you should be asking, how can that be? Because usually, if you're anything like me at least, in your circumstances, in your pain, in your struggles, in your failures, what you usually go to is you think God is saying, now I know what a failure you are. Now I know how you have not measured up. Now I know how weak your faith really is. Interesting, God never says anything like that anywhere in the Bible. Interesting. The reality is that the gospel is actually enabling us to say to God in those circumstances, no matter my circumstances, no matter my struggles, no matter my failures, my pain, my suffering, look how much, God, you love me. Look how much I know you can love me. Not God saying, now I know how much of a failure you are. It's actually us saying, now I know how much God actually loves me. Because he did not withhold his son, his only son, whom he loved from me. That can be the only source of an obedience of faith that we're all called into. Faith's requirement, faith's response, but finally here, faith's reward. So we're still kind of, at least generally speaking, stuck with the question, what what is the purpose of all this? Go to verse 12. It seems weird that the omniscient God says, now I know. God says to Abraham, Abraham, now I know. Now here, look, it doesn't mean, that cannot mean, God cannot mean now I cognitively know. Because God is omniscient, he knows everything, right? No. What's the point? This test, Abraham's faith, Abraham's response, was unto the pleasure of God. What was the purpose of all this? The pleasure of God. Abraham was given the opportunity, the freedom 
the ability to please God. He was invited into it to evoke his God's pleasure and to know that same God's pleasure in his life. That's it. I'm reminded of uh, Chariots of Fire. I feel like I've quoted that about 20 times this year. Sorry. I'm going to have to take like a four-year break on that. But uh, Chariots of Fire, the movie, is about uh, real-life person Eric Little, who was an Olympic runner and later a missionary to China. And there's a tension in Eric Little's story that the movie really does well playing on. The tension of his divided loyalties. Some people are so excited about him being a runner and him giving himself all to that. Others know that he feels called to China to be a missionary, and so they think he should be giving his all to that, one of them being his sister. And so he has this interchange with his sister, and she says to him, all this nonsense about games and running. And Eric Little says this to her. I know God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Look it up on YouTube. It'll give you chills. It's really good. When I run, I feel his pleasure. There's one thing that I've seen most tangibly in four and a half, five years now of campus ministry. It's one thing I feel like I talk to y'all about. Something that I feel like comes up in every sermon. And sometimes I wonder, are y'all, y'all get tired of me saying kind of the same illustration or applications all the time? Um, but about, it's not just your generation, but it comes out in y'all and college students like you now in so much tangible ways. Your drivenness, your striving, your tendency to overachieve and over-involve yourself in anything and everything, whatever it be. And this is why it continues strikes me and why I, I feel a, a, a burden to speak to it so often. It's not because being driven and, and striving and achieving are sinful or evil. They're good things, but it's this. It's because I sense that so many of you, you strive, you, you, you're driven without any reference or knowledge or experience of the pleasure of God in your life. You do it as if something that you might one day achieve instead of something that you already own if you're in Christ. What, what do I mean? I mean, sometimes there are moments where I just want to ask you, do you know that God loves you? Like, do you know that? Do you know that God likes you? It's a different question. Do you know that he's pleased with you? And that's why he calls you to obedience. I have a real life example of this in my own life. Something I've always known about my dad. I've never known uh, a day in my life where uh, I didn't know the love of my father for me. Uh, But we're kind of, we're different people. Um, I talk a lot. He doesn't talk as much as me. Uh, I just talk a lot. But... um, but not long ago, he just he said to me in a text, it, it kind of came out of nowhere, but it was the most honest thing he'd ever said to me. He said, I love you and the Lord, but sometimes I have a problem with loving Jesus more than I love my family. It's a different kind of love, I suppose, but it's hard to dwell on. What was he telling me? I processed it like this in that moment. What my father was telling me in his own way was that 
At the end of the day, no matter what, nothing else mattered to him other than his family. And it was actually hard for him to love anything more than his family. And so what he was telling, no matter what I've done, no matter where I've been, no matter where I end up, he's pleased with me. That's what he was telling me. You know, and I, I think about my dad and, and who he is, and I, I'm burdened with, I wish everybody had a dad like mine. And I wish everybody grieved for people who didn't. But I hope you also get or are beginning to sense and rejoice in that because the gospel is true, we all have a father that is infinitely better than that. All the time. And he is constantly coming into our lives. And he will bring hell or high water for us to know I'm pleased with you. I like you. (laughs) I love you. John, known as the apostle of love, he writes about it like this in 1 John 4. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sons. What is faith going to require of you? How can you know how you will respond? The only answer can be, can be found, can be known, can be felt. Is the love of God toward you in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's an invitation to all of you. Let's pray. Father, we read about your love, we sing about your love. We hear about it. We talk about it even. But Father, if we're honest, so often we don't feel it. And at times, if we're honest, we feel like we couldn't really be farther from it. Father, would you remind us that there is nothing, nothing, When you say nothing, you meant nothing that can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. Would you make this real to us? Would you make this something that we can see and know? Would you break our hearts if they're hard? Would you comfort and heal them if they're broken? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.